0: So, uh, we, we're in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and 4, really. We're going to talk, talk about two stories. And they're two stories that only occur in the book of John. And they are very well-known stories, actually. Um, and this is uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and his conversation with the woman at the well. I love both of these stories. Um, and I, I never get tired of, of studying them. It's hard to preach John 3 because John 3 is probably one of the better-known sections of the Bible, at least John 3, uh, verse 16. Uh, so if anyone, if anyone knows anything about the Bible or any verse in the Bible, it's probably that one. Um, so <clears throat> these two stories occur in John uh, uniquely in his gospel. And I just want to remind us that we talked a couple weeks ago about how John has these moments of individual encounter with Jesus, and they're different for each person, but they cause whoever that is to suddenly realize who it is that they're speaking to. Like, oh man, this really is the Son of God. This really is the Savior of the world. Um, and so John's gospel, it's, it's probably the most philosophical, of all of the Gospels, but then it's also the most intimate of all the Gospels in detail. And both of those things, those don't compete with each other. He's showing really intimate encounters, personal encounters, that reveal to someone the truth, the big truth of who Jesus is. And these two stories do that in an interesting way. Um, What I like about doing these stories next to each other is that they're completely different. Uh, Nicodemus and the woman at the well couldn't be two different people, all right? They're opposites, and John, I think, has placed them next to each other very meticulously and very intentionally, all right? The other thing I want to say before we dive in is that, I'm sure you've come across this, that John likes to use, uh, you could call it irony, or you could call it double entendre or double meaning, where he's saying something and he's meaning a particular thing but you could take it a number of ways, based on how you're hearing it, okay? So this happens in both of these stories, where Jesus is saying something, and someone is hearing the words, but they're, they're hearing it in a way that they're sort of predisposed to hear it. So uh, Nicodemus, he talks about, you have to be born again, and Nicodemus hears it in a particular way, and he responds to that thing, to the way he hears it, but Jesus helps him come to come to Jesus' understanding of what he's saying. Okay? But this this is intentional, right? Jesus he uses these double double meanings because he wants to show someone the gap between their frame of reference and his frame of reference. And he uses these conversations to close that gap. Okay? So he starts out saying one thing and goes, mm, you're not hearing what I'm saying. And he he brings it closer together. Um and so John, I think John really loves this. He loves these interactions where Jesus, Jesus slowly, the, the other person's frame of reference slowly gets broken down <laughs> by Jesus throughout the course of the conversation. And so they're they're in some ways they're more like collisions as much as conversations, where somebody's worldview and and paradigm just clashes with. Jesus understanding his embodiment of truth and it just, and it just sort of collides and it's, it's a little bit messy at first. So this happens in both of these stories, both of these conversations. Um, okay, so let's, let's dive into John 3. <clears throat> There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. All right? So he is, he's very religious, he's very knowledgeable. Okay? This, he's not, this is... He's coming to Jesus as sort of a as sort of a colleague. Like this would be this would be a scholar. All right, let me let me come pick this guy's brain. He's got some teaching. I need to go see what he's about. Now he comes to Jesus by night. And toward the end of this conversation, Jesus is going to have a lot to say about the light and the darkness. And so what John is saying is he comes to Jesus by night, and here's one of John's double meanings, or at least deeper meanings. He comes to Jesus by night, literally, but he's also coming to Jesus in the dark. He doesn't understand, all right? And he's about to encounter the light of the world. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Um, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, and this is a John... This is a Johnism. Truly, truly. Some uh, translations say verily, verily. Uh, The actual Greek word is where we get our word amen. Amen, amen, I tell you. And in John, he always does it twice. And what it means is, let me give it to you straight up. Let me just say this thing. Let me just speak truth to you. Unadorned truth. I'm just going to say it like it is. Truly, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, and you should have a footnote in your Bible probably that says this can also mean born from above, and this is one of the key double meanings in John, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, All right? And it's interesting the way he phrases this here, he cannot see, because a lot of times in John, sight has to do with light and dark, blindness, sight. Okay, You're in darkness. Unless you've been born again, it can also mean born from above. What is Nicodemus here? Born again, literally born again. And that's what he reacts to. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he, and he spells it out, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is ridiculous. How can, You can't re-enter the womb. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... Okay, water and Spirit are two things that should call to our remembrance Jesus' baptism. Coming out of the water, which is representative of a rebirth, and being baptized by the Holy Spirit, being given the very presence of God... You can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about physical birth, okay? Let me spell this out for you. When you're born as a human, when you're born as flesh, and some some translations translate flesh as sinful nature. That's not necessarily the case. Flesh is just human. Human as human. Human as they stand on their own. Okay? God created flesh. All right? Now, now, without the presence of God, it's just just flesh. But when God breathes into you the presence of uh, his own presence, it becomes more than just flesh. So, yeah— You're born in a particular way. And it's flesh. You're born as flesh. You have a physical body. You're in this physical world. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You're not going to be able to really tangibly grasp what I'm saying. Okay, we're, on a di- we're not talking about what you can see or feel or hear. We're talking about the Spirit. How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? So obviously he has a background. He says, "Listen, you're a teacher and you don't understand." Now one of the reasons I think he doesn't understand is because his birth was very valuable. His his fleshly birth. Right? What did the Jews really pride themselves on? Family, blood, the lineage. Okay? I belong to the Jews. My fleshly birth. Right? And Paul has a lot to say about how just being born a Jew does nothing for you. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying here. You're a teacher of Israel. And you don't understand that it's way more than your lineage that makes you an actual member of the kingdom of God. And he says, let me tell you to you straight up. I'm speaking of what, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I know what the kingdom of God is like. Do you know how I know? Because I am the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is done. Jesus has always been in the kingdom of God. He's intimately familiar with the kingdom of God, because in Jesus' life, the will of God has always been done. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I, have, if I tell you heavenly things? So here's what he's saying. It doesn't matter what your birth dictates about your life. I don't care if you're a teacher of Israel. I don't care how much you know. Unless, you are, unless something happens to you where you are radically transformed, where your frame of reference becomes altogether different than this earthly frame of reference. Even if you're a very, very religious person, a really knowledgeable person, it all has to be reborn. All right, and we should think of Paul here, the Pharisee of Pharisees. If anyone has reason to boast, it's me. And he says, but I consider all of this dumb. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul understood that no matter how much he had excelled in his birth and in his lineage and in the zeal that he had for the traditions of his fathers, it all had to go. It all had to be turned on its head. And he got knocked off of his horse and blinded by surprise the light. And then he was struck blind. Okay. Do you see this theme? You have to you have to forget what you what You have to forget what you know. You have to scrap it all. The way that you see and make sense of reality and analyze what's going on and interpret things, you're blind. You're in the dark. You think you know what you see, but you don't. And you have to be reborn. That's why he says, unless you are reborn, you cannot see the kingdom. Not, you can't go to heaven when you die. That's not why we get born again. We get born again so that we can now understand what life is really supposed to be. And who we are really supposed to be. To understand reality. Not just what we think we see. And so light versus dark is a a key here in this exchange with Nicodemus. Everything now begins and ends with Jesus. He's saying. I don't care how advanced you are, you have to start over with Jesus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. (laughs) I know, I've been there. I know what heaven's like. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we've already talked about how, how in, in, in John, eternal life is not getting to heaven when you die. Eternal life is now living as you were always created to be, as, as you were always created to live. This is eternal life that they know thee. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is knowing God, is seeing the kingdom. It's being in the kingdom. That is eternal life. And that doesn't that that happens now. When you begin to believe in Him. Alright? Now we need to say some things about what it means to believe. Okay? Because when when you believe What it means is to entrust yourself to. It doesn't just mean to, all right, you know what, what do I think is is really out there? There's ten options about, you know, what's beyond, what happens when we die. What I think is the case is that we go to heaven if we've been good here and if we say these words about Jesus being Lord. That's my faith. That's what I really believe That's not belief. Belief involves you placing yourself at the mercy of what you're saying. Putting your weight on. All right? When, if I, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) If I stood up here, I could say, you know, I believe that when I jump, I'm going to fall, and then my feet are going to be on the ground. I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because the law of gravity is a real thing. And I calculate the way that I move in, <laughs> through, the, through the world based on that knowledge of what's true, the way that physics works. And if gravity was half of what it is, my whole life would be different. Right? But because I know how gravity is and how fast it takes for me to fall and how much weight, how much force is required for me to, to jump a certain height, that, that really shapes the way that I live. I mean, if you were walking around on the moon, you'd have a different life. Right? Basketball would be a different game. Everything would be different. So this is what faith means. We know who God is, and we live from that reality. And it affects our whole life. And if that reality was different, our whole life would be different. So you have to ask yourself, do you really have faith? Do you really believe in Jesus? Because if you believe in Jesus, your whole, every aspect of your life is different, is in reference to Jesus, right? Every one of my movements is in reference to a particular law of physics called gravity. When you believe in Jesus, everything you do, everything you think, every action you take, every choice you make is in reference to the truth of who Jesus is. That's what it means to believe in him. And so to do that, right, you could say, if the law of gravity was different, on the moon, I have to be reborn. If I found myself on the moon, I cannot live the way that I do on earth. I have to be reborn. That's the kind of of shift that he's talking about here. What What you take for granted, what you just... Every moment, every movement of the day, all those, all those things that you do, it's not what you think it is. And in fact, you need to change the whole way that you live. That's what it means that whoever believes in him, you have eternal life. When you, when you begin to live in reference to God in all of your life, your life is totally different. And it's what you were created to do. So then we have John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It seems pretty straightforward. Um, it, may, it may unsettle you uh, to, to know that when it says God so loved the world, it means that this is how God loved the world. We always hear that as God was so in love with the world that he gave his son. What this is, is a definition of love. It's a definition of love. It's not an expression of what we think love is. Right? Because we have an idea. When I say God loves you, you have a particular idea in your head. God loves you, or you have a feeling. I know what it feels like to be loved. Therefore, this is what God did for me. And because he did that to such a degree, he sent his son to die for me. That's not, that's not what he said. This is a definition of love. Okay, Scrap what you know about love. This is what love is. Self-sacrifice for those who don't deserve it. So it's a completely different verse when you do that. This is how God loves you. You don't deserve it. But he took the first step. There's not much to love about you, but it doesn't matter. And that'll set you free. Because then you don't have to be lovable for God to send his son to die for you. You just have to know that God loves in this way. That he sends his son. For those who, as he says in John 1, his, his own don't receive him. He came to his own and they received him not. They didn't recognize him. Before you recognize God, before you receive God, he came and died for you. And that is what you need to Believe. And that'll change everything about your life. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because you don't believe? No, because not believing is condemnation. It is hell to live apart from God. God's not up there like Santa, making his list and checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty and nice. And he's not saying, oh, oh, them, boom, condemnation. That's not how it works. Now, there is a final judgment. You know, don't get me wrong. There's a final judgment. God's going to gather all those before him and those those who love his coming, those who believe in him, will enter into eternal life. Those who don't will enter into eternal judgment. But he's saying, Jesus is saying, we live in a time where Christ has entered the world out of his love for the world and has sacrificed his life for the world. And if, if you don't want to believe that, if you don't want to place your trust in a guy who totally, in a way that, that you are unworthy of, allowed himself to be killed and crucified because of what you have done, because of the separation that your sins have made between you and God, if you don't want to believe that, the joke's on you. And If you, if you don't want to receive that, if you don't want to live to that, you're condemned already. Who would refuse that? He doesn't believe he's, con- he's not condemned already because he has not believed in the name, and that's the, the character, The name of the only Son of God. You haven't believed what God's Son is like. You don't know what He's really like. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And remember, He's still talking to Nicodemus, who's in the dark. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They don't want to stop what they're doing long enough to allow themselves to be convinced that something else entirely is the truth. (laughs) Something totally different than what their life is about is what life is really about. And so the light comes and people run from the light because it means they have to change what they're doing, stop what they're doing. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Yeah, there's exposure when you come into the light. There's also sight where there was blindness. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, so Nicodemus sort of fades from view, right? We sort of just move on. We don't really hear from him, except in the end of the book, um, and I like to think this is a, a good thing for Nicodemus. He is seen with Joseph of Arimathea, um, Embalming the body of Jesus, he's caring for the dead body of Jesus before he's buried. Um, There's Nicodemus right there, and it makes sure that we know in John nineteen thirty-nine, it makes sure that we know that this was the Jesus who had come to this was the Nicodemus who had come to Jesus by night before, and here he is. He still had been following the ministry of Jesus, and here he is, uh, really providing for his burial. So I, I think that that's a redemptive thing uh, for Nicodemus. Um, but for the time being, we don't, have, we don't know what happened. All right? So the woman at the well, as I said, is, is this is very different. It's out in the open in the middle of the day. It's a woman, not a ruler of the Jews, but a Samaritan, who were repulsive to the Jews. Okay? It was actually... Unclean to deal with a Samaritan, it would make you unclean as a pious Jew. She was a woman, uh, which that in itself, just talking to someone, talking to a woman that you didn't know, was taboo. Talking to a woman that was, you know, not part of your family or, or, it was taboo. That's why the disciples are baffled. They say, "Why, why, why are you talking to this woman? Why are you talking to this random woman? She's also immoral. Right? She's had five husbands and is currently in a, in a non-marital relationship. So she has all these strikes against her. Where Nicodemus has all these checks for him, she has every disadvantage. Okay. Um, all right, so when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making... Uh, go to verse 7. A woman... Uh, Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, right? Not by night. This is at high noon. And it's very, very clear. John is making a point. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's aware of the strikes against her already. Are you sure you want to do this? (laughs) For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So here we go. The gap gap has been set. She's in one place. Jesus is in a totally different place. He knows exactly where he's going, and he's going to work with her to close that gap. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Well, we're not talking about physical living water, which is also another way of saying it is is running water, right? Live water. Um, So he's not using like this spiritual term. He's just saying running water. I'll give you running water, real water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here again, we have this phrase, eternal life. We're talking about if you drink in the life that I give, you will know what life is really like and physical thirst will not be what you live to. This woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Why? So that I will not be thirsty or not have to come here to draw water. I want this living water for satisfaction and convenience. That's what she hears in what he's saying. So first she hears, Hey, there's a place to draw water. Hey, there's there's running water somewhere. Maybe I don't have to come to this well anymore. Then she hears, "Ooh, satisfaction," and maybe I don't have to walk as far. <laughs> but he keeps going. Now, at this point, at this point, this is a crucial turn. Now, how does he go from talking about drinking water to um, her husband? She has just revealed herself that she's in search of satisfaction and convenience. Right? And he says, go call your husband. And come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Okay, what's he saying? Hey, if you, if you want to jump on a well that's going to give you satisfaction and convenience... I bet that principle is at work in other areas of your life. How's your marriage? <laughs> Jesus is, yeah, he's, yeah, okay, he's prophetic. But he was fully man. And he's receiving these words of knowledge. And this is, this is so remarkable to me. And this is what undoes her. This is where, this is where her, her frame of reference begins to crumble. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands... Satisfaction, there's something wrong, something very wrong. And I don't, we don't know why she had five husbands. I don't know the, all the cultural background to it. The, the, the point is, she's had five husbands. There's been no stability, for whatever reason. And the one who's your husband now, or the one you're living with now, he's not your husband. <laughs> Didn't want to be bothered. Let's not even make this official. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Oh. where's that Captain Obvious guy from this commercial. I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she changed the subject again to a religious topic. Oh, so since you're a prophet, let me, let me ask you this question. Does this ever happen to you when someone, like, finds out you're a Christian? It happens to me a lot when people find out I'm a pastor. I don't like to tell people I'm a pastor because they ask, then they start asking questions like this. <laughs> oh, so let me ask you this thing. So what about... It was like okay. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and there was a particular place, uh, a holy place, for the Samaritans to worship. you say that in Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. And he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he goes with her question and he clarifies, hey, the days of single location, the days of holy sites are coming to an end. The days of holy geography is coming to an end. We're talking about direct access to the Father. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you know, we worship what we know for salvation. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not in Gerizim or in Jerusalem, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now that, that doesn't, so this doesn't mean that now all of a sudden place doesn't matter. It means that wherever you are, if it's true worship, it's by the spirit. If you're in Jerusalem, if you're in Samaria, if you're in the ends of the earth, if it's true worship, it's by the spirit of God, through the one who's standing, next, standing in front of you. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, which is way more than he ever gave uh, Nicodemus. It's way more than he has ever. He doesn't get to that point until almost to the end of the book of John. And he comes right out and tells her, I'm him. And then we have this comical interruption. The disciples come back, right? These are his followers. These are the ones that, these are the guys that the apostles, the sent ones, right? And they come back with their with their carryout, and uh, with, <laughs> they say, "Hey, the, the lunch is here. Hey, what's this lady doing here? Let's eat lunch, right?" And this interruption. It's so indicative. So now we have Nicodemus and then the woman and then the disciples. They don't understand. And then he has, there's a gap there. And he says, I have food that you don't know about. And what's their response? Hey, who slipped him a pita? You know, <laughs> whatever. Hey, where'd you get food? Why do we have to. Why did you send us away to get food? If you had food, you should have told us you had food. We had to stand in line. It was, it was, it's lunchtime. This is lunch rush. Why'd you send us away to get food? And he says, okay, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? I live, I, I am sustained by what is life. It's knowing God. It's, it's doing his will. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Physical food feeds the flesh. That's all it does. There's a greater food. There's a greater water. There's a greater birth. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So the story concludes, the woman's story, on a, on a great note. She goes and she bears witness to what she has seen and heard, and the Samaritans start coming to him in droves. And it, this is a wonderful sign because um, Samaritans, this is, this, is, this is premature, right? But even now, they are seeing, because of Jesus' interaction with this woman, what are, they, what are they proclaiming? We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So, not only were they saying that Jesus is the Christ, they're saying that, yes, what's true of the Christ is that he is the king of the world and that all nations are coming in to his kingdom. Somehow they got that. They understood that because of the woman's testimony and as they came and experienced Jesus for themselves. All right, so, two great stories. Well, really three, because this, the, one, the exchange with the disciples follows the same sort of pattern. Total on, on different pages, and working to close that and, and, and get on the same page and communicate truth in a way that gets past the preoccupations of the flesh. Okay? And so I think it would be good for us to, to meditate on the, the big truths in these stories. And, and so with Nicodemus, it's the fact that It doesn't matter what birth has has dictated for you. Whether it has placed you high or low or whatever. None of that has any bearing on entering or seeing the kingdom of God. Your physical birth has no bearing on your entrance into the kingdom of God. That's a process that's not attached to your physical birth. Okay, so that's a hopeful message. That means that there's no such thing in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as privilege. The playing field is 100% level. Every valley has been lifted up, every mountain has been brought down, and these are the days. All are on the level playing field before the Lord, and all need to be reborn. It doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter what your achievements are. It doesn't matter what pain is back there. Rebirth brings you into the kingdom, and it reorients your life completely. The woman of Samaria, Oh one, one more thing I'll say. The, the, the idea of water from a well and drinking water from a well is actually tied to marriage in the Old Testament. You remember in the book of Proverbs where it talks about, hey, drink water from your own cistern. Where it says, in other words, be faithful to your wife. Draw water from your own well. Okay, And so this woman, she's bounced from from marriage to marriage, and she's going from well to well. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's all done. Stop looking for satisfaction and moving on when you don't have it. Stop looking for convenience and moving on when you don't have it. Don't jump at every opportunity for something that might please you more or might satisfy you more or might bring you a greater sense of security. Stop. There's one well, and it meets all of your needs. Drink deep of that well. Right? It is good. And then for the disciples, you know, it's a, it's a similar story. Um, it's, it's the preoccupation with... Just the daily, the daily grind. Daily life. There is a, and and this, is, this is what Jesus is, is showing them. There is a, there's an entire reality that is more real than the one we live in, that if you will seek God and believe in Jesus, in other words, live your life in reference to me, you'll be able to live in that reality, and all of this stuff won't matter as much as it does. We live to this stuff and it and it kills us. It dominates us. And we get worried and, and we despair and we are greedy and we are gluttons and we, we, we can't think of anything beyond the next three days of whatever I'm gonna do to, to ease the pain. Right? And Jesus says, There's a whole world. But you have to you have to you have to lay all this down. You have to stop living to it as if it's real. I hate to use this example, but it's a great example. The Matrix. The movie 's The Matrix, and this dates me because who has not seen the movie The Matrix, yeah, on the young side of the room <laughs> um, there 's a lot of truth to that there 's a whole reality that 's way more real than what you're what you 're seeing and experiencing, and if you will live to Jesus if you believe in him, you will enter into that reality, and all of this will be. <laughs> It will not have dominion over your life. You will live from a place of an eternal perspective. Um, so I don't know how God wants to apply this to you in particular. I mean, you may, you may need to consider whether you have truly been reborn, especially if you, if you have a real religious background, if you have a lot of religious accomplishments, um, if you grew up in a good town, Christian home. Do you know that you had to be reborn just like everyone else? <laughs> you got to start over just like everybody else. And nothing about what your parents did for you does anything. I mean, it points you in the right direction, right? Godly parents are not a bad thing. But ultimately, all of that can only lead you to the place where you become reborn, born from above. Okay? Uh, maybe you're like the. Woman at the well. You can't. You cannot settle on what it is that you want to just settle on. It's this thing. It's this thing. Maybe you've been rejected by a number of people, or you thought you were rejected, but there's just something. Nothing is. That's that's. Satis- there's no satisfaction. There's no. Uh, I'm always thirsty. I always need something else. I always. I'm always not. It's not right. Something needs to change. I need to maybe I need to do this life hacker thing. Maybe I need to, you know, have this device and, and maybe I can clarify my life like this or read this self help book or I don't know what I need to do. Maybe I just need to learn how to meditate. You know, maybe I should get one of these these mindfulness apps and just, just tune out and just, all right, this will really help me, you know. And you just from thing to thing to thing. And Jesus says, Stop. Nothing that comes from this world is ever going to satisfy you because you were not created to be eternally satisfied by a temporal world. You are wired for the Spirit. You are wired for relationship with the Father in eternity. And when you drink of that life, you'll never thirst again. Amen? So let's, let's pray. Uh, let's just take a little time and pray. Um, because we, we do want to, in, in this book, what we're talking about is, is truly knowing God. And knowing God as... Knowing God as eternal life. To know that, that living in the day-in day and day-out world is completely different when you believe in Jesus. Not just because you've become religious, you've become a different kind of person. You've been born again. Okay? Um, so let's, let, let's let, that, let the Spirit speak to us as, however He wants to. Um, and I'll say this as we enter into prayer Did Jesus know how to talk to Nicodemus? Did he know how to talk to the woman at the well? Did he know how to talk to the disciples? He knows how to talk to you. He knows your language. And you may start out in the dark. But he's going to work with you. He's going to keep talking to you. He's going to keep sending signs into your life until you get it. Until you understand who who he actually is and what he's actually talking about. So you might hear words and you might react to them in a certain way. But God will work with you. He will break that down. He will break down your frame of reference and your, your frame of understanding until you really understand who it is that you're talking to. And that is when the two ways will become apparent. The way of life, the way of death. And you'll see it for what it is. So that's my prayer. As I was preparing this morning, I, I, I was praying that, that, that uh, we would get to that place where the, where the physical world would just be stripped away. And where Jesus could say, no, truly, truly, let me just tell you how it is. And I hope that it happens, maybe not this morning, um, but I hope that that happens for, for us as we go through this book. Jesus can look us in the face and say, let me tell you something. Amen? Well, let's pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Father, you're so good. Lord, we thank you that uh, you take time with us, that you, you engage us, Lord, in conversation. No matter who we are, no matter what the, what the taboos are, but you, you engage us. And I thank you, Lord, that, that you have engaged every heart in this room. Some have responded in faith. Some have been confused, been a little bit in the dark. Some have been hardened in some ways. Uh, But, Lord, I pray that you would press through that, that uh, you would continue standing at the door and knocking. And I pray, Lord, that the scales would fall from our eyes, that we would see you, that we, we would hear you, that you would speak to us, Lord, our story, where we've come from, that you'd speak to each individual here and call us into the kingdom of God. Call us into fellowship with you and and your Father by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you know us. You know how we're likely to respond. You know just how to talk to us. And I pray that you would do it, Lord. Hallelujah. We'll just sit before the Lord for just a little bit longer.